0: You're listening to Board Game Cinema. My name is Ryan, and this is episode 20. Board Game Cinema is a weekly podcast where I talk about a movie that I like and then discuss a game that matches the same theme or flavor as the film. This week, I'm joined by my friend Brooks as we look at the film Blade Runner 2049 and the game that matches it in theme and flavor in human conditions. So grab your dice, grab your popcorn. And let's dive right in.
1: I can't tell you how I knew, but I did know that I had crossed the border. Everything I loved was lost, but no aorta could report regret. A sun of rubber was convulsed and set, and blood-black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within, cells interlinked within, cells interlinked within one stem, and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. Vladimir Novikov, Pillfire.
0: So this week on Board Game Cinema, we're going to be discussing what is perhaps the greatest sequel of all time, and that's Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner 2049 is, of course, the sequel to the 1982 sci-fi classic film Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott. So the vitals on Blade Runner 2049 are, uh, it was released in 2017, it's an American science fiction movie directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, he also directed some other very noteworthy movies um, before Blade Runner 2049, which is the last movie that he's directed that's been released. He directed uh, Prisoners, uh, Enemy, which is the strangest ending of any movie ever, <laughs> Sicario, a Arrival, which is a fantastic science fiction film, and then Blade Runner 2049. And he's the director of the upcoming and much anticipated uh, Dune movie. So, Blade Runner 2049, um, plot-wise, as I said, it's a follow-up to Blade Runner that came out in 1982. Um, you know, Many years have passed, and um, it sort of checks in on the Blade Runner universe. We follow the exploits of, in a neo-noir fashion, of Ryan Gosling's character, K, also known as Joe, and his assignment... Um, so I'm going to keep it really short here because we we do, Brooks and I do discuss it pretty in depth. Um, I did want to give a bright red shining spoiler alert. Um, both of us are really big fans of this movie and we're both very passionate about it. And so we speak a lot about it pretty freely. So in the segment ahead, there will definitely be some spoilers for uh, both Blade Runner, obviously, and then more importantly, Blade Runner 2049. So keep that in mind if you do choose to listen. I encourage you to do so. Um, I think it's we have a pretty good conversation about some of the philosophy behind the film, Um, and so yeah, hope you enjoy it. So on the podcast today, we're going to discuss Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which came out in two thousand seventeen. is directed by Denis or Denis Villeneuve. So Brooks is gracious enough to join us, that way you don't just listen to me drone on and on and on (laughs) in my monotonous, high-pitched, Weasley-type voice. Instead, you get to hear the dulcet tones of the Southern charm provided by Brooks.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's accurate.
0: (laughs) How are you doing, Brooks?
1: Doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. That's good to hear. So It's great.
0: I want to talk today about Blade Runner. 2049 specifically (laughs) and the first question I have for you, because we're going to do this, not as a, like a conversation, but instead we're going to do this as an interrogation, like voint comp style, where I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and I want you to answer honestly and whether or not you walk out of this room alive or dead depends on your answers. So I guess first question I have for you is, um, Is Blade Runner 2049 a better movie than Blade Runner? The The Blade Runner that came out in 1982, the original Blade Runner?
1: uh, For me, personally, I think it is. I didn't grow up watching the original Blade Runner. I didn't see the original Blade Runner until I was um, in my 20s, I I guess, after I was working in the video store. And uh, while I definitely think it's a great movie, um, I... Saw it kind of after I'd seen a lot of other, uh, you know, newer sci-fi movies and even newer like Philip K. Dick movies. Um, So while I did think it was a great movie and obviously Harrison Ford is, I mean, I was a huge Indiana Jones fan, so Harrison Ford's great. But uh, the new one, I think for me is like everything about it. I mean, obviously we'll get into it, but everything about it's great. Um,
0: so let's talk about that. So I do, so I do think that, uh, Blade Runner 2049 accomplishes something that a few movies do and that any still, anytime you're watching the movie and you hit pause, essentially that pause leaves you with a still image, which could be, uh, a painting in its own right. I mean, yeah. the, visually it's not a movie that's not just you know, just sumptuous. It is visually arresting. It's dazzling. The choice of color palette, the the, the shots, the cinematography, the atmosphere, the tone—visually—is beyond anything else I've seen on screen. I, I believe. Um,
1: yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. It's one of those. It's one of those movies that. It's like, yeah, the cinematography, like that's a movie where you walk away and you want to look up who the cinematographer was. Right. So you can see what other movies he's worked on.
0: Right. And I believe the cinematographer of the movie was Roger Deakins. And um, I have to say, uh, really a master of his craft, like in his finest hour. I mean, I, I can't state enough... How the cinematography of Blade Runner 2049 contributes overall to just the amazing, you know, visual feast for your eyes. Um, the lighting in itself is its own character. The way that the Wallace's headquarters, which, you know, was before was the Tyrell Pyramid. The way the light shimmers in certain rooms as it like reflects off the water the way the light comes on and off as characters enter and exit rooms, the light of the birthday cake when, you know, she's working on that memory yeah. and how all that's woven into like this color theory where certain colors represent certain things in the movie or Mm. certain feelings. And there's a lack of certain colors, specifically yellow. Yeah. Except for in a few scenes like that birthday cake scene that, the It really is, unlike any other movie I've seen, um, with the exception of, uh, you know, maybe a movie like uh, Pleasantville, where color is like its own, like sort of thematic character. Blade Runner 2049 is, is the same way, where the colors and the color, the use of the lighting is its own character. Um, so I feel that, you know, every still is a painting, the lighting is its own character, it has an amazing cast. I mean, yeah. Ryan Gosling yeah. playing like K, aka Joe, Harrison Ford reprising his role as Deckard. Yep. Gerard Leto as Neander Wallace, the sort of maybe bad guy of the movie. I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, depending on how you look at it. Robin Wright Penn um, as his boss. Dave Batista is like an older version replicant. Yeah. Um, and then you know a few other like really notable performances. Um, like, uh, the, the actress that plays, uh, joy. Yeah. I think her yeah. name is, she uh, does a great job. Anna de Armas, something like that. Um, what did you think about the performances?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, they're all great. I, it wouldn't be such a great movie if it didn't have phenomenal acting throughout um and yeah i mean ryan gosling so when i first saw this i had no idea that ryan gosling was a replicant like going into it which Mm -hmm. it's not a spoiler you find that out within two minutes of the movie yeah
0: and yeah and we are going to be talking about this is an open conversation so we're going to be talking about spoilers you should have heard a spoiler warning before this but in my previous segment but in case you didn't like you skipped over it people like oh it's ryan talking to skip ahead (laughs) then <laughs> this this
1: You mean this fifty sec- of the sixty minutes? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so this um conversation is gonna be open ended and we're gonna talk about everything. So um her name is Anna de Armas and then again I also wanted to point out uh, Sylvia Hoax plays Love. Yeah. Her performance yeah. is surreal yeah she's but, like stone but, cold the whole time right but i'm sorry i didn't want to interrupt you you're saying that you didn't know that he was a replicant yeah
1: yeah i didn't know he's gonna be a replicant going into it so you get it you know you start watching the movie and he's also pretty stone cold um but yeah like throughout the movie you know that changes some and he like and there are these tiny nuances in his character and his emotions which uh yeah just i mean it speaks to like his ability to to act and how great he is at his craft um and then of course like harrison ford coming back um what 50 years later not not quite 50 years but 40 years i guess a while right um, Eighty two yeah, to two thousand seventeen, whatever that is yeah so yeah i mean him coming back to to do this role again like and he there's like nothing missed like with the the age gap there like just the time like uh-huh. he came in and like nailed it um but yeah I, I thought the performances were great and yeah the actress that plays joy uh playing like a uh a not really ai i guess ai
0: yeah like well yeah like siri like a holographic yeah, Siri. yeah
1: yeah but yeah like yeah i, I thought all the performances were great
0: so then we talked about the visuals. We talked about the performances. We've talked about um, the cinematography and the lighting. What about the sound? So I know the music was mm. the Benjamin uh, Wolfish. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I mean the sound is it's it definitely takes you back to the the original Blade Runner. Yeah. Like some some of the sounds, some of the music, but uh, yeah, it's uh it's not like any music you've ever heard before
0: well there's some parts in the movie where it's no, there's weird noises right and you're like you're just yeah that's brang. like what it is that's the music and it's it's something that if someone had described to me i'd be like oh that sounds terrible like what do they do? but when they watch the movie you're like it's perfect yeah and especially
1: in this like industrial world post cyberpunk yeah right? yeah yeah like,
0: near-apocalyptic version fits. of the world?
1: It fits perfectly. I oh. mean, there's there's no, like, there's no greenery in the world. There's no... And there's no green in the movie except for, like, the one scene. Yeah, at Anna's um, when she's building the, yeah. the
0: the insects. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, there's another scene with the green and yellow um at Sapper Morton's dead tree where she's oh, left, like, right. a, a little, the flower. little flower. Yeah. And that's it, I think, until... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, so the, the score and the sound effects and everything are just beyond amazing. Yeah. Um, and then the sets and the costume design. I mean, it, you, I feel like you're in that world. There's the Chinatown scene when he's like eating the noodles and he gets like talked to by the other replicants that are fishing for information. Yep. 350 um, background actors, you know, just each dress totally uniquely and you feel like you're in that world. And that takes a high level of attention to detail. And I know I've talked about this before on the show, but one of the things that makes you know the original Blade Runner so successful is that Ridley Scott said he wanted to basically build like a 700-layer birthday cake where there's just detail upon detail upon detail upon detail. Like details in things, the background of the background of scenes that you'll never see ever on screen, but it causes, you know, the actors and the performers to like be immersed in this world and feel like they're in this real world with real practical effects. Very few green screens in the movie. Yeah, yeah. A lot you definitely know like the sets. Yeah. Use sets and it works. So essentially, and correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you disagree, but basically, we've discussed a movie which um, the lighting is better, the cinematography is better, the cast is as good, if not better. The scores is good, if not better. The sets are as good, if not better. The costume design is good, if not better than the original. The story is is good, as not better. And so, by your estimation, it's a better movie than Blade Runner.
1: Yeah, I would say so. For me,
0: so I would say that it's not.
1: (laughs) I know Blade Runner is your favorite sci-fi movie of all time. Well, yeah,
0: and I don't just think that's my favorite, but I I um, argue correctly that. (laughs) that Blade Runner is the greatest uh, science fiction movie of all time. And part of the reason why I say that is because of the philosophy that it invokes. You know, I, we've talked before on the show about how great science fiction, like, asks great questions. It makes you, like, grapple with those conundrums or those riddles. And Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, it does that. And and I've been in love with that movie for a long time. Um, I think the first time I saw it, I was spending the night at Jay Norton's house. His parents had the cable TV my parents didn't have cable and it was on one of the channels like HBO or something and i couldn't believe it. like i was just so blown away and like so immersed into it and uh have watched it many many times throughout my life obviously and um one of the things about
1: so just to just to say you know when i first watched it i watched the theatrical version right and there are things about that that will turn you off of the movie right now there are things that are, I mean, obviously it's still a great movie, but there are things about it that like will turn you off. So absolutely. Yeah.
0: And so if you're a listener out there, you've never seen Blade Runner or you've seen Blade Runner 2049, but you've never seen the original, um, for some reason, maybe you're in prison or you're incarcerated (laughs) or there was an incident where you were delivering packages with a FedEx type plane and you crash landed into a like (laughs) desert Island and you never watched the original Blade Runner. Um, make sure you seek out like the director's cut or the final cut. The final cut. The final cut I think is what's recommended by most people. Um, It it gets rid of a lot of the narration that the studio added and the happier ending that the studio wanted to add and a few other things. And um, has a more languid pace, I think than what the theatrical release has where it allows things to develop in their own stride. Um, But I argue that, um, you know, this is when you get into areas of like, you know, there's reasons of like sentimental reasons and nostalgic reasons that like lead you to like like a movie more than another movie. And I'm fine with that. Like, I can see that point. What for me was so upsetting was when they said they're going to announce Blade Runner 2049. I, along with a lot of other people, were like, why? Like, what? Like, Why? (laughs) Like, why mess with, like, essentially? And I have to admit, like, I was completely wrong. Like, this movie, when I went to watch it at the movie theater, I think there's maybe one other person there. Because nobody watched this movie. <laughs> um, I was I'm blown away. And, like, I wanted to watch it again, and I did watch it again. And ever since then, you know, since I have it at home, I've watched it, you know, from time to time. Every time I watch it, I see something I never saw before. Or yeah. I notice something I never saw, or like, oh, what does this mean? Or, oh, I never realized this is what he's trying to say here. Or yeah. Just little, because there's so much going on. Yeah. That um, I pick up something like every time. Yeah.
1: I got to say, so when we recently watched this with our uh, outdoor cinema night, mm-hmm. um, there was something that I caught that kind of... Uh, sparked the ongoing debate that we have about whether or not Deckard is a replicant. Yeah. But like there is something in this movie that made me think, yeah, I still, I still stick to my stick, to my guns that he's a replicant, which I yeah. know that you don't. And I really don't think we have enough time to get into that.
0: No, we can, we, but there's, the, but listen, there's, listen to me. We have all the time. In the world. <laughs> I'll stay here until four in the morning. I don't even <laughs> play like this. Um, We can talk about that. We can definitely talk about that. But so what is it that you saw in the well, recent video? So
1: when, uh, when Kay is talking to, I think his name's Gaff, uh, Deckard's old partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's talking to him. Edward and, James Alamos. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And he makes the comment that Deckard wasn't for this world. There is something in his eyes.
0: hmm
1: And that... Is something that the original Blade Runner, everybody who's a replicant, they have this like light in their eye, mm-hmm. including Harrison Ford at different mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Um,
0: when, and you're, when you say, when you, when you, when you, what you're saying is when you look at their characters, you see a light in their eye. There's, there's like a light their in eye.
1: their eye at certain scenes. Right. Yeah. But also, I just think like that's also something that you would say, like, you know, there's, um, yeah, there's like something in his eyes that makes him like different from other people. Now I don't, I'm not saying that's exactly how that line was supposed to be delivered or that's what it's saying, but that's what I took away you from You can it. interpret it as yeah, that. That's, that's how I interpret yeah,
0: it. Yeah. And we, you know, um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about eyes. So, you know, the sort of the classical notion of eyes are eyes of mirrors to the soul. Clearly souls are important in the movie Blade Runner and in Blade Runner 2049. In the first Blade Runner movie, um, they go to see who makes the eyes like Roy Batty, and mm-hmm. that's how they, you know, and then um, Tyrell Eldon Tyrell is killed when Roy sticks his thumb like in his eyes, and um, there's a lot of like eye, like the light in the eye replicant's eyes, and mm-hmm. then in 2049, they kind of carry along that same thematic notion with the eyes, and that um, <clears throat> when Deckard goes to Wallace's headquarters and they bring out the version of Rachel, yeah. He says the her eyes are the wrong color. That's right. Right. And her eyes are green. Yeah. And there's a lot of um in Blade Runner, in both Blade Runner movies, there's this notion of eyes and eyes being important. So much so that in the new Nexus, or the not the new, but the Nexus 8 model, like what Sapper is and a lot of the replicants in the movie are, not Joy or I'm sorry, not Love or or K aka Joe which are uh, Nexus nine models, but the Nexus eight models like Sapper and, um, the other leader of the, the Republican army, um, you know, look up into the left. They have like the serial number, like on the actual eye. Yeah. Um, so clearly eyes are of importance in both those movies as being like windows to the soul potentially. So let's talk a little bit about that. What, so Brooks, what is the soul? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh or i guess let me, let me
0: let me let me ask what is the soul in relation to the movie blade runner and blade runner
1: 2049 to you uh, i mean so there's a there's a clear scene in the movie where k says you know he's been ordered to kill this um child or man 30 yeah 30 year old that was born by a replicant the
0: progeny of rachel and Deckard,
1: exactly And uh, he says, you know, I've never killed something with a soul. I've never retired something that was born before. Okay, yeah, yeah. And to be born is to have a soul or something like that. So
0: when asked, what's the difference? He says to be born is to have a soul. And then his boss says, well, you've been getting along fine without one, without a soul. Right, yeah. So clearly, Kay and his boss, Robin, right, feel that to be born gives you like a soul. And he doesn't feel bad about killing other replicants. Because they're machines like him, just like him. They haven't been born, and so they don't have a soul. Um, And by not having a soul, a replicant is somehow inferior because they're made, not born. Right. Joy, when they start to, at one point in the movie, they start to feel that maybe Kay is, in fact, the progeny of Rachel, and therefore he was born. Joy says, of woman born. She specifically says the line, of woman born. And I always knew you were different. You were born, not made. And the line of woman born is from Shakespeare. It's from Macbeth. And the notion that to being born gives you a soul is important in Blade Runner because whatever the child that Rachel and Deckard had, regardless of Deckard's either human or replicant origin, would then be um, something that in their minds would have like a soul, right? And would therefore be more than just being like a replicant it yeah. would be a, a human or the equivalent of a human right yeah
1: um it would be born it would grow up it would have real memories
0: right and so when yeah. he finds out that rachel gave birth and that he might be that child Kay is excited about the possibility that he has a soul right and he right. clearly feels that this is important and it drives him to like go against his programming, yep. not follow the orders of his, um, superior yep. he and instead lies. he lies right. Yep. Um, so does having a soul make you real in the movies? Does that, is that what it takes to be real? Is that why it's important to be born? And, and that's why there's an importance to be able to give birth is when, if you have a soul, does then that make you a value of, of, of importance more so than just a machine?
1: Um, so honestly, I mean, the way I, the way I look at it is like the fact that he gets to this point where he feels like he may have been born and he can start making these decisions for himself. Mm -hmm. Like at that point he, and the decisions he makes throughout the rest of the movie, like he's doing that with the understanding that he, at the time he thinks that he is, he was born. So he thinks that he has a soul at that point because he was born. At least that's my interpretation of it. And that he then starts doing that stuff and he starts making these decisions that help other people out and go against his programming. Because he has a soul. Right. Because he has a soul, or at least, again, he he feels like he has a soul. I think that's, uh, at least that's the way I look at it, that the fact that he thinks he has one, he, um, he does, he, his actions kind of reflect that.
0: So... In the world of Blade Runner 2049, in the world of Blade Runner, the Blade Runners that you see, the replicants that you see in Blade Runner, like Roy Batty and the other, you know, Pris and and uh, the other replicants, mm-hmm. they're, they're Nexus Six. So they're, at that time, the highest level of, of Nexus. And then we're relatively relieved that Rachel and potentially Deckard are a higher level, a next level of, of replicant. You know, Rachel is. Sp- pointed out as like different she doesn't have a lifespan of four years like the uh-huh. other ones do she doesn't know that she's a replicant the replicants know that they're replicants they know their memories are false but she doesn't know that she's a replicant they've given her memories of like her, his niece or something right and if you watch Blade Runner 2049 when they look at her serial number when they zoom in on her skeletal remains it starts out with N7 so a mm-hmm. lot of people point that like at least Rachel, maybe she was one of a kind Nexus Seven, and therefore you know she had the ability that to 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 have children. And then the other Nexus levels models are like Sapper Morton and like these these ones that in the short film that you watched, um, Blackout, yeah, um, by Shinjiro Watanabe, the guy that did Cowboy Bebop, they they like had a rebellion and they like you know tried to like kind of rise up and they were outlawed and then. Um, now like while Wall- Wallander has made like Nexus nine models, like Kay and love. And there's an interaction at the beginning of the movie where Kay talks to Sapper and you know, he's like, my kind, don't, I don't, I don't kill my own kind. I don't retire my own kind. He never says kill. He says, I don't retire. I don't retire my own kind.
1: Yeah.
0: And the notion I think there is that you can't kill something without a soul, right? You don't kill a machine, like you destroy it or retire. Right. right? So I don't, I won't retire my own kind. My kind doesn't run. Yeah, and he's like, "Well, your kind doesn't run because you haven't seen like a miracle, right?" So, if the notion, if a soul makes him, if the idea that he has a soul, then allows him to think outside of his programming, and 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 do things like lie to his superior, fail his baseline test, like go on his own. You know, he, he tells, like, oh, I killed a, I killed the yeah. child, even though he has no intention of doing so. Because he, in fact, yeah. maybe is a child. And when he finds out he isn't, he still doesn't, like, kill him. He doesn't follow the orders of the Replicant Army and go kill Deckard. Instead, he, like, saves, you know, Deckard. So if having a soul, um, if that changes him to such a degree, or if the idea of the possibility he has a soul changes to such a degree, does it matter if he has a soul or not?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I don't think so. Yeah. Um I think it's all just uh his perspective or his I don't know. Whatever he it's kinda like if you think you have the the ability to lift this like giant truck up over your head and yeah. then like somehow you manage to like get close to that even. Like I don't know. Um yeah, I just think the fact that he wanted to. He wanted to. Uh, I don't know. I guess like the whole like possibility that yeah. he was special, and now how that like triggered him to be able to do all these things that's supposed to be outside of his programming. Um, well, it's the same I thing that know.
0: Roy does, right? So in the, in the first Blade Runner movie, Roy is a combat model. He's designed and programmed to kill, and his very last act is an act of, like, he saves Deckard's life. He reaches out and grabs him, keeps him from falling to his death, even though they've been fighting. Yeah. And um, that kind of ties into the statement, you know, like, there's nothing more human than die for a righteous cause, was what's said in Blade Runner 2049. And essentially that's what Joe slash K ends up doing, right? He, like, dies trying to, like, save Deckard from torture and interrogate interrogation. So I think there's like a nice symmetry between the two films. So in researching the movie, the the, researching the movie for this podcast, um, I watched a YouTube video by a guy um, called like stories of old. And in that podcast or in that video, he says that humans have a symbolic self and that gives us a soul and a belief. We are special. So stuff without a soul, we subjugate such as nature or animals, we, you know, a lot of people think animals don't have a soul and therefore they're under the dominion of man. Um, machines, you know, obviously don't have souls and therefore we use them to do whatever we want. And in the world of Blade Runner, replicants. So if it's our soul that gives us freedom and an excuse for our superiority, um, him thinking that he has a soul you know, then allows him the freedom to like think about himself outside of himself. It's like the mind body problem, right? So you as a person don't think of yourself as flesh and blood walking around. You think of yourself as like this consciousness that exceeds and surpasses like your body, right? Because you think about yourself in a way that's not interwoven or trapped into like this physical form, right? Right. And the replicants, at least the ones that we see, at least K, um, he doesn't seem at first to have that like ability to like think about himself outside of his own form, which in their language, we'd call programming or code. But later on he does, he like learns to lie and love has that same ability because love she talks to like his boss when he, she kills her. Like, I'm going to tell yeah. Wallace that you tried to shoot me first. So clearly she has like secret life and that that ability to separate your the ability to think about yourself larger than like just your own body and your own immediate like presence that allows you to like have things like secrets and wants and desires. And like clearly love has secrets because when the replicant is born, when the new replicant is born, she cries. And when Wallace comes in with his robotic eyes, she hides that from him. So I think there's, I I think there's a lot of interesting things being said about that. I'm just not smart enough to figure all of them out, (laughs) if that makes sense. Um, But it's what I like about the movies. Like it asks these like really tough questions. Like what what is a soul? What is it to have a soul? What is it to be human? What is freedom? Like what is autonomy? What is freedom of thought? Like how do you are you fated to do something or can you choose like your own destiny? Yeah. And then also equally important is, you know, like there's a scene where, um, she tells, she tells Joe, like, are you telling me no? When he's talking about retiring a living thing, are you telling me no? And she's like, he says, I wasn't aware that was an option, ma'am. So at that point he's like bound by like his, he has to do what he's, you know, but by the end of the movie, he's so far transcended like that line of thinking. And that comes with, the notion of him like thinking that he has at least the potentiality of having a soul. Yeah. And if that is just an idea that he has, then what's it to stop other replicants from also having that same idea? Yeah.
1: It sounds like, uh, some seriously flawed programming (laughs) (laughs) for this entire group of replicants. Yeah. All they have to do is think that they are special and then they can just like do whatever they want. Um, yeah yeah, I mean so that that, sounds like some bad coding but see
0: that part is important too because there's a notion in the movie where I thought oh okay there's a couple of scenes here that are maybe trying to tell me something right so is Kay special so Kay he looks up at the snowflakes a lot yeah and there's scenes where he like there's two scenes in the movie where he like looks up and examines the snow one when he's dying and one earlier in the movie and he reaches out and he grabs a snowflake and I, you know, the thing you think about when you think of a snowflake is its own uniqueness, mm-hmm. right? So is every human unique like a snowflake and is every replicant unique like a snowflake? Because even though they're mass produced, right. once they are off that assembly line and they're walking out in the world, they're developing their own experiences and their own memories. And doesn't that differentiate them from others of like their kind? And doesn't that allow them the space to then like become like their own person with that being said, the most fascinating thing to me of Blade Runner 2049 by far is that K aka Joe is not special. In fact, he's just an average Joe, therefore the mm-hmm. name Joe. He there's moments in the movie where he thinks, look, I'm the special progeny of this other replicant. And he so badly wants to be. Like the leader of the resistance tells him, like, we all want to be, right? Mm-hmm. But he's not. He's just an average Joe. And it made me think so much about like the um, way that the last Jedi was rejected because it positioned Ray as just like this normal, not related to any like monarchy, not a Skywalker, not a Kenobi, not a, you know, she was just this average person and people like so much rejected that because they want there to be like the one, like in the matrix or like the Messiah figure. And in Joe is the protagonist. He's just this average replicant. It's almost like it's telling you that any replicant could do what Joe does. If it just envisions itself like doing that, just has that idea that it could be free, then it could be, but maybe I'm way off.
1: Yeah. Well, so then, um, one question I have when I watch the movie is the memory he has, that's the real memory. Yeah. Do all replicants have that memory or is he, (sighs) is he unique in that sense that he has it and nobody else has it?
0: So there's a couple of, I don't know. So, My impression when I watched the movie was that she, I think her name's Anna, right? Like the daughter of Deckard. I think her name's Anna Staline, Staline Industries. Yeah. I think she broke the law and gave some replicants that real true memory because she thought it would make, they have such hard lives. She wanted to give them something powerful and meaningful And I think she gave some of the replicants that memory. I don't believe that she gave all replicants that memory. I think she gave some of them that memory and that he was one that she gave that memory to. Now there is an interpretation of the film in which that Joe is set up as the decoy because Deckard talks about changing the records or wiping the records. That Joe is special, and that he was a decoy. That if somebody did go and sort of seek out this child, they like Joe did, would find himself as a potential like person. Mm, yeah. For me, that doesn't make sense because that no. would that would have to mean that Anna knew about the memory and knew about her origin to the point where she put that memory into Joe. Yeah. And when I watched the movie, I feel like she doesn't know that she's the daughter.
1: No. Of, I don't uh, think she knows. Kirk- yeah, she has no idea. Also so going back to you know bad programming. Yeah um and so I thinking about that memory, the fact that he has this memory, and that's really what kind of sets him down this path. Like put like
0: Because he finds a physical he thing finds something from a memory that he has
1: that matches that. Right. And I think it just like it causes a glitch. Like it's a bug, you know? Like it causes him to then Actually, be able to foresee him being special and him being uh, unique. Yeah. So,
0: is it a glitch, or is it what we as a human being would call faith,
1: uh, or, or even doubt? Think it's, or even doubt, right? Mm,
0: like he begins so to I doubt his a, like existence and think that maybe he's more, or he begins to have faith that maybe he's something more.
1: Yeah, no, I, you're right. I mean, I think it is is faith, but again, like I think back to like, so why him? Out of all of the replicants, well, obviously Love also has has, uh, gone down this different path. She has secrets. Right. But he doesn't even consider that until he finds this thing and it matches a memory that he has, which is like, what are the chances that any other replicant is ever going to run into something that matches a real memory that they have. Like they're going to find evidence of this real memory that they have. Right. So I feel like in that happening, yeah, it gives him faith that he's something more, but I feel like that's kind of like what triggers the entire series of events for him to be able to like him to be able to lie. And right, go down this path that no other replicant should really be able to go down.
0: Yeah, but there's also they clearly show dozens of other replicants that are out of their programming and planning some type of yeah, violent that's insurrection. That's true. So this isn't something that like only he is like come to a, come you know. So I think like um, to backtrack one bit, I think that like if we say like the ideation of like the potentiality of having a soul and being a replicant. If in Joe's case, he thought like, oh, maybe this is me. But I think in the other replicant's case, the power of that idea is merely not in the knowledge, the firm knowledge that a replicant out there was able to give birth and per- perhaps gave another replicant a soul. So, oh, maybe I have a soul. And that causes that glitch, a.k.a. Gotcha. doubt, a.k.a. Yeah. faith, that then leads them to like lead these secret lives where they're like not just pleasure units working in this Chinatown brothel, but they're also... You know, spies for this resistance that's growing that we never see because it's not portrayed in Blade Runner 2499. Maybe it'll be in Blade Runner 2075, <laughs> The Rise of the Machines, you know, which is another reason why I love, you know, the movie because it's not a movie about, it's not a movie about the replicants taking over the earth. It's a movie about, it's a neo noir movie about a confusing mystery where a beaten down protagonist is trying to make his way in a world that has machinations, which he barely understands. Right. Yeah. And to me, that's the form of cinema that, you know, is one of my most beloved forms. Right. So you mix that with sci-fi with like amazing performances and soundtrack. And like, you have this recipe for the best sequel of all time. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned briefly like memory. Um, and that's a big image that's a big issue with like Blade Runner, right? Memory as images. You know, so David Hume, the philosopher David Hume says that for human beings now, memory we think of memory as images in our mind or videos in our mind, right? We have the contextual language to think of a video as like a memory. Whereas, you know, a thousand years ago, people didn't have that constant concepts, right? Mm-hmm. So if we think of videos or, or images as memories and people as a collection of memories, also known as experiences, make us who we are, what about fake ones? Do fake memories um make you... Uh, do they have an impact on a person just as much as like a real memory? Clearly, J- Joe yeah. has a fake memory, but it changes the entire course of his life, right? Yeah. So... I guess my question is, what does that say about like humanity and reality? And we'll we can talk about this a little bit more, maybe um, with the movie that we discuss next week. No, yeah. no spoilers. <laughs> not going to tell you what that is. But I do think that memory and experiences, whether real or fake, do define like who we are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I
0: think it. that's a big theme of like the Blade Runner movies.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so initially. He is who he is. He's following orders. He's, you know, he's a Blade Runner. And that's with his memories that he, like, his implants. Uh-huh. Um, it's not until he sees that memory differently that he changes his direction. Right. Um, so, it's like the the memories themselves, uh, without meaning, obviously have like, they don't really seem to have a meaning to him because he knows that they're implants. Um, but as soon as you feel like you have a, a real memory, at least in the movie, as soon as he feels like he has a real memory, then yeah, he, uh, he's able to do so much more.
0: So a machine is built with a purpose, right? So you make a machine to do something. Roy Batty's made to go in combat. Pris is made as a pleasure model. Joe is made, Kay is made as a blade runner. He's made to kill other replicants can they change their purpose? Can they go against their code like Roy and, and, you know, Joe end up doing and are human beings born with a purpose? And if so, how do they know what that purpose is? How do they find that purpose? The only hint we're given, I think is when she says that the most human thing you could do is die for a noble cause or a righteous cause or whatever the quote is. So maybe that's the purpose, right? To like be willing to put your life on the line for something bigger than yourself. Um, but it is interesting that a science fiction movie about androids right asks questions of this type and I think that's why Blade Runner deserves so much admiration and like yeah. Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 because they it's willing to ask like questions of that type which you know I don't I don't think the movie answers but it does you know ask um so let's you know in brief talk about um Joy. So does Joy love K?
1: Um I don't
0: know. You know, that? I don't know.
1: I mean, she seems to, but then again,
0: is it just her program? There are
1: thousands of joys, yeah. if not hundreds of thousands of joys out there. <laughs> um, I think that if Joy's programming is similar, so Kay seems to love Joy,
0: right? But so, but there's a couple times in the movie where he says, like, oh, you don't have to say that. You there's a couple times in the movie, says, like, you don't have to say that or you don't have to do that. When she's like, says right. something nice. Yeah. And it's almost like he's questioning, does she really feel this way? Yeah. Or he's she, like, like yeah,
1: I know that you're not real. You yeah. Know? But then, so he's technically not real, or at least he doesn't, right. you know. And then he has this uh, companion who's even less real than he is. Right. Because she's a hologram. She yeah. has no physical form. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I thought that was a really interesting part of the movie. Um, yeah. So that he's like in love with her or seems to be.
0: And when I watch the movie, I feel like she's in love with him.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely get that. Like there's no doubt about it
0: because she dies for him essentially. Yeah. You know, yeah. and she chooses to die for him. And yeah. In fact, she says like, I'll, I have the possibility I'll die like a real girl. Yeah. You know, and like yeah. to her, that's attractive because then she'll, her life will have m- meaning. Right. It yeah. won't, it won't just be again. It just won't be her programming. She'll choose to make a decision to die for a cause bigger than herself. And that's what she does. She comes on and tries to distract or beg empathy out of love, which we all know is (laughs) love has no empathy. It just steps on your neck. (laughs) And I think to me, that was like a really touching moment. She leans down and tells him like, you know, I love you. Now you could argue that's her programming, right? right? She's a consumable good. And like, that's her you know consumable good. And that's her programming. But I, I, I'm with you. I think that, it is a fascinating element of the movie is that like the movie doesn't just say like, Oh, what makes a human, a human or really it's human. It also says like, what, what makes anything a human, what makes yeah. anything like, she's just this part, like she's Siri. Right. Like, right. Yeah. You know, it kind of gets like vibes of her, which yeah. is like, I don't know if you ever saw that. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he falls in love with his, like his, yeah, his personal phone, assistant. AI, uh, yeah. Um, so in terms of questions that the movie asks, and we can just in really quick and brief, um, is Deckard a replicant? Does it matter if he is or not? The beautiful thing of 2049 to me is it tackles that question, but it doesn't tell you the answer. It doesn't show like, oh yes, definitely Decker was a replicant. It basically lets it still leaves it still yeah. vague and open to interpretation. It's always open. And I think you could argue either way. I choose to see the movie as Harrison Ford does and that it is, you know, he's not, he's like a, an aging human that is, um, that's fallen in love with the machine and ends up having a kid with it, right? But with her, but I could totally understand people that see the movie as like, "Oh no, Deckard is there a, a replicant." Him and Rachel Nexus Seven models. There's a hint in the movie that Wallander thinks that way because he's like, "Oh, you're programmed to meet and fall in love with her so that you guys could have this baby," and maybe that's true. But to me, it's a very cynical way of like seeing the world. <laughs> the world.
1: You know? I mean, yeah, but I don't know. When I watch it, I think that something about that because it's never it never really comes out in the movie that he is or isn't. I guess it's it's just something like people talk about, right? Um, you know, like it's never really addressed in the movie or in either one of the movies, right? But it's something people talk about, and that I think is fascinating and. Yeah, I like the the thought that he is, and it's never addressed in the movie. You watch the entire movie, and you know when, the first time you see it, you think he's a human, and maybe he is. But just like the afterthought of oh, maybe he wasn't, it makes you want to go back and rewatch it and think about all the little things that could like fit that narrative that he isn't human, that he is a replicant. Yeah, and I that's just really interesting to me. That's why I, and and there's really no evidence in my opinion, that would definitively say one way or another. Um, no, no,
0: no. There's no, there's no, yeah. You can't argue one way or the other for right. the first certain. It's just what you, your interpretation, anyone's yeah. an interpretation. Yeah. There's no, and I think that's the beauty of the film is there's not like, you know, like they could have made Blade Runner 249 and the first thing is, the first scene is like, oh, Decker died. Oh, he did an autopsy. He's a replicant. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. I'm so glad they did not go that route. Right. Um, so anything else you want to say now that I've rambled about blade runner 2049 for like, no, I think you've covered all of it. (laughs) So I did want to give a couple of shout outs and thank you to some people that, um, I watched their YouTube videos. There's, if you're interested at all in blade runner 2049 or the philosophy of the blade runner universe, there's tons of really great YouTube videos made by people way smarter than I am that can put a lot of this in the context for you. So, um, like stories of old is a great YouTube channel that has amazing videos about blade runner. Um, Mark commode is a, um, Uh, YouTube, uh, English YouTube, or I'm sorry, an English film cinema reviewer who I watched his review of Blade Runner 2049. A Matter of Film is a YouTube channel, and Wisecrack is a YouTube channel. All of those channels um, have some amazing Blade Runner 2049 content, so check it out. Um, We'll be right back um, after this ad with some discussion of a game to play after you watch Blade Runner 2049. Because this week on Board Game Cinema, We are all about the replicants. Thanks, Brooks. Thank you. You're not welcome.
1: (laughs) Doc Badger's mobile pet grooming services help keep your pet clean and beautiful this holiday season. Can't find the time to bring your animal in? Doc Badger will come to you and your pet. Doc Badger offers a wide array of grooming services such as shampoos, nail trimming, hair drying, and teeth cleaning. Located in South Philly, Doc Badger travels across the greater Philadelphia area. Call in or visit our website for our coverage area. Our website is docbadgerlovespets.com. Doc Badger is a pet grooming expert for any pet from cats to dogs to ferrets and turtles. We are Philly's only pet groomer that is mobile that specializes in goats. Contact Doc Badger for your pet grooming needs.
0: So the perfect game to play after watching Blade Runner 2049, or even the original Blade Runner probably, is in Human Conditions, a game that came out in 2018. In Human Conditions is a two-player only game, um, and the playtime is, amazingly enough, just five minutes. In fact, it has a timer. I didn't mention this in the longer review, but it's worth pointing out it does have a free app, um, which is like a thematic timer that you can download at no charge, obviously, and it um, has some pretty cool graphics that you can use to time the game. It was designed by, uh, and apologies if this is pronounced incorrectly, but Tommy Meringues, uh, Corey O'Brien, and Mackenzie Schubert is the artist. So yeah, the designers were Tommy and Corey, and the artist is Mackenzie Schubert. It is a game which essentially is a attempt to replicate the uh, Voight-Kampff test that the Blade Runners would give to the suspected replicants in the first Blade Runner movie. Um, this has been replaced by looking up and to the left and having a reader that can scan a microscopic serial number in the newer models of the replicants. But in the Nexus 6 models such as Roy Batty and, and Pris and, I think, um, Leon. They would go through a Voigt conf test to determine whether or not somebody was a replicant. And it would measure pupil dilation and a bunch of other breathing and a bunch of other bio, biological, um, biometric, I guess I should say, um, readouts. And what this game is, it's, a, it's a, sort of a very short two-player social deduction role-playing game. Um, based in the Blade Runner universe. So I'll leave it at that, and Brooks and I will dig into it a little bit more. So after you watch Blade Runner, we uh, end Blade Runner 2049. Um, clearly the best game to play is a two-player game called Inhuman Conditions. And Inhuman Conditions, I would say is an attempt to replicate the Voight-Kampff test from the original like Blade Runner. 100%. Um, which again, I forgot to, that's another, I just realized that's another eye thing. Like no, uh, when they talk right. about eyes as a to the soul, that's how they look at someone's pupil and the dilation of the pupil is when they do the voight Comp test, the VK test to see whether or not they're a replicant or human. So thematically, essentially, um, do you want to try to talk about how this movie relates to, or how this game relates to the movies, the first movie and the second movie?
1: Yeah. I mean, it it is the voight test like through and through it's, uh, you are, so one person plays the interviewer and the other player plays the suspect who is either a human or a robot. Uh, and if you're a robot, you could either be a patient robot and like a calm robot, or you could be a violent robot. And during the interview, the interview takes five minutes, and whoever the interviewer is, they have a series of questions. Um, this is after you know both players have kind of like gone through some some setup, and the suspect has drawn a card to determine whether or not they're human or, or a robot. But then, yeah, the interviewer asks these questions and has to determine um, what they are. And I mean, yeah, that's
0: in just five in just five minutes. In five minutes, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so it's really short. Um, but the question: so if you are a suspect and you are a robot, then you might have certain conditions that you have to meet when you answer the questions. So, for example, as a violent robot, uh, you have to meet two objectives. Um so in the game that we played where I was a violent robot, uh, one of the objectives was to answer 3 questions with one word, with just a single word. Um and another objective was to answer two questions non-verbally.
0: Yeah, and so in the game that we played where you were the violent robot and you ended up killing me. Um the great thing about the the cool thing about the game is like you're suspicious of the other player and whether or not they're doing anything weird, because I don't know that your condition is this answer questions with one word. Right. But I did think it was like weird that I asked a question and you just said like one word response, but I was like, I don't know, maybe he's not like really into like the role playing part of it. So like I didn't, you know, so, so you're just looking for this like subtle weirdness kind of where it's like, you know, somebody answers a question in a slightly off way than maybe how they would normally talk or, they take an extra amount of time to like think about it too. I think it's a good tell if they're like really thinking about how they want to answer. Cause if you're a human, you're, you're not, there's no, um, boundaries. There's no, no tethers. There's no restrictions. Except for
1: the penalty. Right. So right, there is right. a penalty card that you draw be, before each round. That's and face up. That's face up. So both players know what it is. And if the suspect, um, meets that condition of the penalty, then it does raise suspicion because if you're a robot and you don't like adhere to the conditions that you're supposed to, you have to do the penalty. Like you have to yeah. meet the condition of the penalty. So then that raises suspicion. Or because if you
0: see somebody doing the penalty, you know they're you're w- like one of the robots. Oh, one they're the- a robot
1: or they like just didn't think about it. But the thing was is like the penalties that we played with at least, one was like point to something. Yeah. And at no point during any game, especially a game like this where you're not actually using components, really, right? do you need to point at anything? So if I started pointing at stuff,
0: it would tell me right I think away. you would know yeah. that
1: I'm, yeah, I'm not a yeah. human.
0: But some of them are a little bit more subtle, like yeah. take your hands off the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I do without thinking ta- about right, it.
1: Right, exactly. And uh, and one, so when I played as the human, one that we used was um, say two consecutive words that rhyme. Mm hmm. And honestly, that's pretty tough to do in natural language. Uh, To do, I just did it, oddly enough. But during the game, when I was answering questions, even though I was human, I know that I sounded like a robot at times because I was so cautious of not having two consecutive words that rhyme.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where it's hard to do. Like when you think about it, but if you don't think about it, you can do it like over and over and yeah, over. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. So as a patient robot, I, I played once as a patient robot and as a patient robot, you're just trying to make it to the five minutes without being identified. And then when they mark you as human, you like shake their hand in a way in which you like, let it be known that you were in fact were a robot and they've the, the interrogator or the blade runner essentially fails because they did not suss you out. Um, And as a patient robot, like you just want to answer the questions, but you have to always do it in a a certain way. So mine was um, when describing how you do something, always give at least like three, no less than three um, steps. So, you know, he'd say like, you know, um, how would you, you know, get away from a boulder or like any any question he asked. I just kept like giving a bunch of steps, Um, but I did it in a way in which it was natural enough because I never shut up anyway and just ramble yeah. on and on and on that he was like, ah, oh, this guy just so talks normal. all the time. So it was, it was kind of normal. Um, so I was able to last the five minutes. He asked the final question, he marked me as human and then I identified myself as a robot and which, you with know, a case, really weird handshake, with a really weird handshake yeah. in which case I you know have won essentially. So if, if you're a human and the investigator and marks you as human, then you both win. If you're a human, if you're a violent robot and you kill the investigator before they identify you as such, then the violent robot wins. And if you're a patient robot and you get identified as a robot before the five minutes is up, then you lose. But if you last the five minutes, get marked a human, you win. That pretty much sums it up, right?
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Let's talk about the components. What do you think of the components in the game? Uh, the box, the the... <laughs>
1: yeah I mean I, I thought they were great. Uh, the box it looks like it's out of a sci-fi movie mm-hmm. um and it's part of the game uh, like it's part of the setup it's it's pretty much the board when you open the box up yeah um the cards they look like they're from some like dystopian future uh, you know they have like the little check marks on the sides and stuff and uh, different shapes, but like they're, I don't know, it's weird.
0: Yeah, so a lot of times you hear like um, people talk about a game being overproduced and I always wonder like, well, what does that mean? Like yeah. a game should always be overproduced. This is the definition of a game overproduced. that's overproduced. It's like yeah. a five-minute, two-person role-playing game and has like amazing components, yeah. like the topography, the ref design, like the little stamps that you get, the yeah. rule books. Like, It's like every component is like super, super, super top-notch and like as a fan of Blade Runner and the Blade Runner universe, this is a game I would recommend you getting just to even own. I don't know like how often you'll like bust it out. It is a fun of activity, like a two person five minute activity. Yeah. It's fun, um, and there's actually some good. Um, Adam Coble has some good um, videos on YouTube of him and his friends like playing this game, which are you know, pretty fun to watch six minutes long and pretty fun to watch. So if you're interested in it, definitely check those out. I'll give you a really good idea of like kind of what it is that we're talking about. Um, but in terms of components, I'd, you know, say like a plus quality, it's not a game where it's like, Oh my God, this is the funnest game. Like everybody has to buy this game. I think it's a game. If you're a big fan of blade runner, you might want to have it just because it it's like replicating a Voight test, which is, you know, this famous test from this really famous movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said that it was like a lot more role play did, than you thought it was going to be? Yeah,
1: I, I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so the first game, I would say so. Because, you know, you have to come up with a name. You pick a profession. Uh, like there, there's a deck of cards mm-hmm. where you pick a profession. Um, and then, you know, there's the initial question about that profession that you have to answer. You don't have to go into a ton of detail, but it's just like... The first game we played, as I was answering questions throughout those five minutes, I tried to keep my profession um, or background in mind. I didn't do that with the next, like the second game. And honestly, you don't have to do that. Um, And for a five minute game, I don't think it's worth putting a ton of time and effort into like the role playing aspect Uh, I think it really just comes down to you answering these questions, trying to fit these conditions that you're supposed to fit. Um, And I think just doing that, it's fine. But uh, yeah, initially, I did think that there's more role playing to it. If you're into role playing, you can definitely do this. And have a really good time with it with the role playing element of it.
0: Yeah, and I thought the best part about that was the role playing cards that they're given there for you to select from all seem to be from like the Blade Runner universe. Oh, yeah. Like my card was a maker of false animals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So it's are yeah. clearly cards with like, you know, Off World, Blade Runner, yeah. Cyberpunk, that kind of like, you know, prompts in mind. Um a couple I think,
1: options I had were cult leader, conspiracy yeah. theorist, um, yeah.
0: So yeah, overall I think it's uh it was, you know, an interesting game. It's an interesting two person, five minute role playing game. There's not too many of those available available that I know of, and definitely not too many set in like a Blade Runner esque type of universe. So That's
1: also uh, a hidden role game.
0: Yeah. A hidden yeah, a hidden yeah. hidden role game, yeah. Um social deduction. Yeah. Um so yeah, check it out. Um, there'll be some uh, images on Instagram, obviously, of us playing the game. Um, so feel free to check those out if you want to get an idea of what the components that we're talking about look like. Anything else in closing you want to say about inhuman conditions?
1: Nope, all good.
0: Cool, I'd like to play it again. Give it a shot and see. Um, it looks like there's some alternate or more advanced rules, too, that we didn't even dig into. Yeah. So maybe we'll eventually we'll check those out. But anyway, um, we'll be right back with a wrap-up. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brooks. Thanks
1: okay KD6-3.7, let's begin.
2: Ready? Yes, sir. Reset your baseline. In blood black, nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem. Dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain plate.
0: So in Blade Runner 2049, there's a scene where uh, Joy is talking to K... And she offers to uh, read him a book. And the book he has, she says it's his favorite. It is Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. So I bought that book to see what it's about and how it relates to Blade Runner 2049. Because it didn't seem like they would just put in a random book. And actually, it's interesting because in... The book, Pale Fire, it's a, a book about a 900-line poem, or a 999-line poem, called Pale Fire. And then the rest of it is a commentary by the poet's neighbor. Um, but the really interesting thing is that Kay's baseline test that you see a couple times in the movie, where he's like, cells, interlock cells, interlink interlinked with cells, interlink with cells, that whole thing, that's from... Pale Fire, and basically, what happens is, is the poet has a near death experience, and he dies and is brought back to life. And in that moment of death, he sees this vision, which is what you know the the baseline test is, where he sees a uh, a white fountain. And later on, he reads an article about um, a woman that had a near death experience, and in the article, she also talks about seeing a white fountain. And so he, the poet, becomes intrigued by this as maybe evidence of an afterlife or a soul, something beyond the physical corporeal like being. And he's so obsessed with that notion that someone else had seen this white fountain, the same white fountain that he had seen, and as it you know, could be used as possible evidence of an afterlife, he tracks her down and tracks down the person that wrote the story about her. And to his surprise, and at least initially his chagrin, he finds out that it's actually a misprint. So the experience or the memory that the woman had had was not, in fact, of a white fountain, but it was of a looming white mountain. So it was a typo, which led him down this incorrect path. Sound familiar? (laughs) So yeah, it's a pretty interesting... um, It's a very strange book in that it's sort of... A commentary about a poem by a fictional poet, by his insane, clearly insane neighbor. Um, but anyway, I did want to just throw in that little tidbit uh, if anybody's interested. Thanks. And that'll bring this week's episode of Board Game Cinema to a close. I want to thank everybody out there for listening. I want to give a thanks to Brooks for co-hosting this week, talking about the movie and the game. And as always, you know, look on our Facebook page for some images of the movie, some alternative images as well as some links to some videos and look at the Instagram page for some pictures of the game in play. Um, This week's question of the week was, what is the first movie you remember seeing at the movie theater as a child? So it's kind of playing off on the theme of memories, interested in knowing what's the first memory you have of going to the cinema. Um, We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode, so hopefully you guys will be able to join us then. Until then, take care.
2: Officer, let's begin. Repeat the final word that I say in each phrase.
0: Ready? Yes. Interlinked. Interlinked.
2: What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. Have they left a place for you where you can dream? Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked what's it like to play with your dog interlinked interlinked do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing interlinked interlinked do you like to connect to things interlinked interlinked what happens when that linkage is broken interlinked interlinked have they let you feel heartbreak interlinked interlinked did you buy a present for the person you love within cells interlinked interlinked Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked.
0: Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked.
2: We're done. Looks like you are constant. You can pick up your bonus.